Today, every answer matters more than ever before. Because whether it's about health, deliveries, or finance, some things just can't wait. That's why IBM is helping businesses manage millions of calls, texts, and chats with Watson Assistant. It's conversational AI designed to help your customers find the answers they need faster, no matter the industry. Let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash Watson Assistant to learn more. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. I would be want to make friends if you're trying to make some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. She loves me. She loves me not. With the earnings season kicking off tomorrow, everybody's playing this game, trying to anticipate the numbers. Will the quarters be good or not so good? Will they propel the market higher or send it into oblivion? It's all people in the stock world want to talk about. People are paralyzed, and they're polarized, and they're scared. They're scared about what will happen this earnings season. That's why the averages meander today. Dow dipping 14 points, S&P effectively flat, NASDAQ declining 0.21%. The fear is palpable that earnings could be down year over year. But no one wants to leave the table because stocks are still the only game in town. Even though we've had a real slowdown since the Fed's last rate hike, the alternative to stocks, the bond market, once again, offers only paltry returns. Let me make one thing real clear here. Over the long haul, I think you'll do just fine owning a diversified portfolio of high-dividend stocks, you know, growth stocks, healthy balance sheets, especially compared to the 2.5% yield you get from parking your money in the 10-year Treasury. And that's true regardless of this day-to-day action. So I don't want to get too fixated on earnings season, but I, I want to help you. I want to help you get through this tense environment. I want you to have some context about why everybody is so worried. So let me give you an earnings cheat sheet, kind of a mini game plan for navigating the pitfalls and opportunities from the first companies that report right out of the chute, the ones that we're all going to be talking about for the next four days. The banks, as they do so often, set the tone for the entire reporting season. The first thing you need to consider when analyzing earnings reports has nothing to do with the reports, nothing to do with fundamentals. It's all about where the stocks are trading going into the quarter. Remember, expectations are everything in this business, and that's good news for the bank stocks. Because for the most part, they've been trading sideways for a while now, and expectations seem low for most of them, which is a very positive storyline. Let's begin at the beginning with J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo, both of which report tomorrow. I think J.P. Morgan's problematic here because it's already up 15 bucks from its December lows. But as I said yesterday to a nice gentleman in the elevator riding down from J.P. Morgan's retail conference, anytime you can buy Premier Bank in America with 3% yield, well, you know what? I would gladly pull the trigger. You know what would be even better, though? Buying it at 3.5% yield, which, of course, would make it go down because he's not going to raise the dividend that much, which brings me to the first rule of bank earnings season. These stocks are completely and utterly ungameable. There are so many moving parts to banks, so many line items, so much arcane jargon that it's almost impossible to figure out which way a bank stock will trade from the headlines. I can't tell you how many times I've seen gunslingers buy the stock of J.P. Morgan as it's rallying pre-market trading, 615, 630, 645. Just boom, 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 taking it all the way up. And then they're taking a beating. By the time Marianne Lake, the excellent CFO, finishes her portion of the conference call, Lake just can't seem to help herself. 
She insists on telling the bad with the good. Her honesty can make you feel like this isn't a good time to buy any bank stock. It's not that Lake means to be downbeat. She just seems to enjoy telling people what's not so hot, while CEO Jamie Dimon tells you what's working. They got a, got a good cop, bad cop routine going on that call. And that's where the stock price comes in. With JP Morgan, 106 bucks with a 3% yield, I think we'll be more interested in the positives from Dimon than the negatives from Lake. Remember, we just got Diamond's annual letter, and while he's as bullish as ever, I'm betting we're going to hear a lot of nonsense from the peanut gallery about how the earnings have peaked over, you know, after the call is over. That's what the, the storyline is going to be. That's the new conventional wisdom. And it'll be difficult for J.P. Morgan to change the story. But what about Wells Fargo? Well, that's a horse of a different color. Honestly, on earnings basis, this may be the cheapest I've ever seen in this stock. It's nine times earnings. 3.8% yield. Then again, um... It doesn't have a CEO. Probably a pretty big deal. As a devotee of Tim Sloan, the now retired chief executive who fell on his sword to protect the company from bad PR, I've got to say, it's not like he quit when the goal was tough. He has left his successor with a clean bank that's returned to growth in a very short period of time. Now that long-term interest rates are back down and Wells is rebuilding trust with its customers, I want to own this stock before the board appoints a new CEO. Why? Because you're going to hear that Warren Buffett, the bank's biggest shareholder, likes the new choice, and that's going to bring in buyers. Buy, 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 That's how it works, people. So with the stock down here at 47 bucks, sporting the biggest yield of the majors, I think Wells Fargo is a much better buy at this moment than J.P. Morgan at 106, given that Wells is only up Five points from its December lows. And I've got to tell you something that does matter because on a head-to-head basis, I'd rather have J.P. Morgan than I would Wells. But Wells has come down and J.P. Morgan hasn't. Next week, we get the rest of the major banks. And once again, I'm not betting on any upside surprises because their stocks are so low, they don't need upside surprises. On Monday, we hear from Goldman Sachs and City. We own both my travel trusts. You can follow along by joining the ActionAlertsPlus.com club. And on our monthly club call tomorrow, I'm going to tell members that while both stocks are cheap, that may not be enough to move the needle unless their quarters are really great. Cities developed a kind of nasty habit of missing numbers while it's been buying back stock by the bushel. The buyback has meant nothing, nothing to shareholders. As they want to see growth, Citigroup doesn't have it. I kept thinking when you buy 78% of the bank of the stock back year for year, people would kind of be enamored of it. Not working. I think Goldman will print an amazing number, but it won't do much for the stock because until their involvement in this huge Malaysian fraud scandal gets cleared up and the fines are paid, I can't see the stock heading back to 262 its old high. On the other hand, it's hard to imagine Goldman falling 50 bucks from 203 on bad news. So where it was in last year. So I, I, the risk reward here is positive for Goldman. I believe the Malaysian scandal will end up being small potatoes, costing at most a couple of quarters worth of earnings. And I don't think it's going to be near that. People will wonder why the heck they sold the best investment bank when it was trading at less than eight times next year's earnings with no real franchise risk. And a CEO, David Solomon, who's rapidly getting a reputation for creating tremendous incentives to win for shareholders. I see many good quarters ahead for Goldman, Goldman Sachs, but they'll be obscured by uh, this Malaysian thing until it's in the rearview mirror. Next, there's Bank of America. This one's tough. Just a couple, uh, just point off a 52-week high. That worries me, as I'm not sure the stock can rally from these levels unless the company delivers a massive upside surprise. And that simply isn't the way these guys do business. While Bank of America is a great company, at nine times next year's earnings, its stock is simply more expensive than most of its peers with a smaller yield. So I don't know if it can draw many buyers. Which leaves the bank that, in my view, 
has the most potential to put up shockingly good numbers. That's the bank of Morgan Stanley. CEO James Gorman has gotten this place humming after a less than stellar previous quarter. I have rarely seen a chief executive who seems more motivated to crush the numbers this quarter than this man. I, here's how you have to look at it. Basketball fans, you'll understand this. Morgan Stanley's kind of the University of Virginia men's basketball team of banks. Last year, they were beaten by the worst, by the lowest seed. Never happened before. This year, they won the crown. I'm betting Morgan Stanley will do the exact same thing this earnings season. The bottom line. The banks are the group that sets the tone for earnings season, and that's a lucky thing because this time the stocks are coming in ice cold, which means that they should be able to rally on even the slightest positive provocation. Let's go to Shane in Arizona. Shane! Booyah, Jim. Thanks for having me on today. Oh, Um, my pleasure, Shane. My pleasure. Real quick, I want to give a shout-out to my dad. He's a big uh, fan of the show. He's out in the Philadelphia area watching, so I just want to say hi to him. Um, Good to have him. Yep, thank you. Uh, so real quick, my question's about Carrizo Oil and Gas. Carrizo, yeah. um, been holding the stock since 2016. Uh, they've been taking you know a pretty bad beating the past you know few quarters, um, but it looks like their earnings are you know on point. They've been beating the uh, expectations last year. They are high on debt, but their production levels seem good. So trying to get your you know uh, opinion look, I like on, Chip. on this. I like Carrizo. I think that they've done many many good things. They financed correctly. They've done the right equity offerings, but it's an oil stock. And that, of course, Shane, means people don't want to own it. Let's go to Steve in New York. Steve. Hey, a big Long Island booyah, Jim. Hey, I'll be there. I was there last week in booyah. What's going on? <laughs> uh, thanks for everything you do. Uh, um, now that WorldPay is being acquired by FIS, yes. I wanted to know if I should ring the register on my WorldPay shares or wait until the transaction closes. And no, take let's the go new home. Let's find the next WorldPay. Ka-ching, ka-ching. We're not arbitrageurs. Let's go to Bill, Massachusetts, please, Bill. Hi. Hey, Bill. Hi. How are you, Jim? Thank you for taking my call. Oh, of course. I'm calling about uh, Melco Resorts and Entertainment. Right. MLCO. Uh, with their properties in Macau and Kotai and successful uh, resorts in the Philippines and now a new one being built in Cyprus, uh, my question is, I see, don't, I, I see an upside for Melco in the long run. My specific question to you is, should I keep Melco in my portfolio for the long haul? Well, I don't mind you owning Melco, but I got to tell you, I got a real hanker for Las Vegas Sands. Yields 4.6%. It's got a, just a lot of momentum, and I think that this is the one that could have the most upside. Uh, now that Wynn has already moved. So I like LBS. All right, the big banks kick off earnings season tomorrow. Well, I think bank stocks are ungameable. They do have the potential to go higher and therefore set the entire bar in a positive light for earnings. Man, money tonight. Was it a bloodbath, a bedbath and beyond after earnings? I'm eyeing the company to see if it can shake off its troubles. Then Jeff Bezos just challenged Amazon's retail rivals to outdo its $15 minimum wage. I asked Macy's CEO what he thought about it when I visited him today at the company's flagship store in Herald Square. And how a pair of sneakers could fetch you hundreds or even thousands of dollars? Stay with me. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. 
CBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC. You want to know why capitalism works? Accountability. When the people running a publicly traded company screw up one too many times, the shareholders can get rid of them, unless you're dealing with some weird capital structure that's designed to sideline investors. If the actual owners can't fire management, that's not really capitalism anymore. It's more like free market feudalism. So what do you do when a troubled company refuses to replace a clueless CEO? In other words, what do you do if you own stock in bed, bath, and beyond? There's only one answer. Revolution! You need to storm the Bastille, take over the Estat General, set up a new regime. I'm not saying it's time to get in touch with Monsieur Guillotine. But I can't blame anyone who looks at the quarter bed, bath, and beyond reported last night and wants to take some heads, metaphorically speaking, of course. For the last five years, this business has been a catastrophe. And the stock reflects it. Down from 80 bucks at its peak to 17 and change right now. 17 and change, including a hideous nearly 9% decline just today. When I look at Bad Beth and Beyond, I see only two real positives. The company has a solid balance sheet. So in theory, something can be salvaged with the right leadership. And the uprising has already started with a group of activist investors pushing to oust the CEO and everyone on the board of directors. Everyone. Yep, last month, Legion Partners, Macellum Advisors, and Encore Advisors teamed up to take a 5% stake in the company. They've been very aggressive about pushing for change, and I'm betting last night's absurd conference call hands them all the ammunition that they need to pull off their corporate coup d'etat. Why am I getting all worked up about this one? Because Steve Tamaris, CEO of Bed Bath & Beyond, has had years to get his house in order. But instead of adapting to a, a new environment dominated by Amazon, he's presided over a slow motion train wreck. It's bad enough that he's never saw it coming. What's unforgivable is that he still seems lost. Let me read you the bill of particulars from the activist rebels a few weeks ago. Then we'll get into the atrocity that was last night's conference call. Atrocity. First, while Bed Bath stock is up dramatically from its December lows, thanks to a better than fear quarter reported in January, it wasn't totally awful. Along with a more benign environment for retail and the activists acting as a catalyst, its long-term track record, it's horrendous. The activists pointed out in their letter a few weeks ago that since Steve Tamaris took over as CEO in 2003, that Bed Bath & Beyond had lost 58% of its value over a period where the S&P 500 was up 342%, and its closest retail peers were up 592%. All of that pain is from the past five years. What went wrong? Bed Bath has failed to adapt to a new retail landscape where e-commerce is king and you need a fun in-store experience to compete. The company's thrown out a bunch of half-hearted initiatives over the years. They keep saying 
that private label brands are a priority. Well, that's a good way to boost margins. But as the activists say in the press release, quote, more than three years later, we can detect no evidence of a unifying margin enhancing private label strategy, end quote. They talk about embracing furniture and home decor, even though that hasn't really worked in the past. In 2016, Tamara started telling us he'd made the stores more experiential to improve the shopping experience. But you wouldn't know if you've been to a Bed Bath & Beyond lately. As Macellum Capital's John Duskin told us earlier this week, Tamaris has done 10% of 100 things, as opposed to 100% of 10 things. And now Bed Bath is trying to compete with Amazon on price. Yep, despite having a network of 1,500 physical stores, they'll match Amazon's price on identical items. And to get people to join the loyalty program for $29 a year, the company offers not only free shipping on online orders, but also 20% off every single order. This strategy has been devastating for bad baths, bad baths, I'm trying to make, you know, see a little joke there instead of bad, bad, bad baths, gross margins, what they make after the cost of goods sold, which have fallen from 40% in 2012 to under 35% in the latest quarter. Meanwhile, all the way down, bed bath has conducted maybe the most idiotic buyback I have ever seen. Five years ago, the company had 204 million shares outstanding and an $80 stock. Now it has 132 million shares outstanding and a $17 stock. In 2014 alone, they borrowed money to buy back $2.25 billion worth of stock at $68 a share. Crazy when you realize this is now just a $2.4 billion company. If Tamaris had just sat on that cash, he could have taken the company private right now. He could have acquired Wayfair, the online furniture retailer, which was valued at $3 billion when it came public in 2014. It's now worth $13 billion. So it's no wonder these activists want to replace the whole board of directors and fire Tamaris. The average board member's been there for 19 years. Two co-chairmen have been there for 48 years. Listen to this. Over the past 14 years, where Bed Bath stock has lost roughly half of its value, Tamaris and the two co-chairmen, they've received over $300 million in compensation. After these activist firms got involved, the stock caught fire. As investors finally had some reason to think that the situation might change. But if you bought Bed Bath in the past few weeks, when you got burned, uh, you got burned when the company reported last night. So... At first, the headline numbers seemed okay. Sure, Bed Bath's same-store sales shrank by 1.4%, and the revenue was a bit weaker than expected. But the company delivered a nice earnings beat and gave you an impressive earnings forecast for the full year. So the stock jumped to $20 in after hours. As soon as people looked deeper, though, they realized management was guiding for horrible results in the next quarter, including same-store sales down 5 to 6%, and basically asking, asking all of us to trust them to get things back on track by the end of the year. But after Bed Bath's conference call, there's no reason anyone would give these guys the benefit of the doubt. How does Tamaris intend to fix things? Aside from a series of buzzwords, we really have no idea. The best thing he's got going, he's got some new store concepts that are producing results that are 2.2 better percent, 2.2 percent better than the regular stores. Uh, but that's too great given the scale deterioration here. For all of its bluster about a turnaround, Bed Bath is simply looking to, quote, moderate the declines in our operating margins and earnings per share with the expectation of returning to earnings per share growth by 2020, end quote. Well, that's a low bar. And I can't explain uh, why they're assuming a return to growth next year. I didn't hear anything. In fact, the quarter was so bad that the analysts in the Q&A session seemed stunned by the lack of a real plan to change the company's trajectory. There was a, kind of an open rebellion moment at the beginning of the questioning when Stephen Forbes from Guggenheim asked, quote, so you're saying you're not going to provide no additional color other than that? It was a crystallizing moment. These guys don't know how to fix their problems. So here's my message to Bed Bath & Beyond. Give the activists what they want. At least the activists have a plan. The current management, I say their motto is this. If you don't know where you're going, any route looks fine. Bottom line, 
it's time for a wholesale change at the management of Bed Bath & Beyond. The company still has a good balance sheet, $1 billion in cash. So I think it can be saved. But I've got to tell you something. Not with this management team. Not at all. Much more Mad Bunny ahead. Macy's just announced a new approach to retail. I got a first-hand look at the concept when I visited the company's Herald Square flagship this morning. They're not doing what Bed Bath's doing. I'm going to bring it on home for, na- for you, and you will love what you see. Then it's a NASDAQ for sneakerheads. I'm finding out how one e-commerce site is taking aim at the luxury market. And why Jeff Bezos' letter taught me more about business since my first days at Goldman Sachs. Stay with Macy's finally ready to play catch-up. Oh, it's been a tough 2019 so far for shareholders, but with so many other retail names making comebacks, i got to wonder if Macy's stock is just too cheap to endure. I mean, it trades at less than eight times earnings. It's got a 6.2% yield and a much-improved balance sheet. Earlier today, we had a chance to check in with Jeff Gannett. He's the chairman and the CEO of Macy's. He was at the company's beautiful flagship store in Herald Square. I sure like what I heard. Hope you do, too. Take a look. Jeff, I was going to say this, but I don't like burying the lead. Uh, we are at Herald Square, and I just came through story. And this is it. This seems like the mark that you're trying to make on Macy's. I think this is the evolution of what brick and mortar needs to be. You know, brick and mortar needs to go from a place of transaction to a place of experience. And so story is one of our first steps in really doing that at scale. I saw it was filled with color. Uh, yeah. Gorgeous, uh, sensitive to sensory, uh, sensory beauty, which is yeah. something that reminds me that you had to fix the balance sheet first, but now you are playing offense. Story's offense. Story is offense. Right. But we did have to get the balance sheet right. So when you think about, we throw off a lot of cash, and so and we had to get the balance sheet right. So the first thing is we want to use that cash to invest in the business. We want to make sure that we have a good dividend. That's something that we have committed to our shareholder. We had to get the balance sheet right as step three. And so getting the debt out. So we spent the last four years, got two and a half billion off of the, of the debt and a billion and a half just or 1.1 billion just in 2018. And now we'll think about share repurchase in the future. And we'll talk to our board about that. But for now, making sure that we get back into the re- leverage ratio that we want to be. Okay, at. that's important because the six percent yield. Well, we get so many calls about your stock, yeah. and I always say, look, the balance sheet's good, the, the dividend is good, and that was something you prided yourself on. But we I'm do. so glad that at this point you're able to do all the things that you told me that you had in your head, beautiful things that right. really are exciting for anybody who comes in. Yes. So you know, Jim, when we look at kind of the brand right now, there's kind of the four stages of growth. Okay. So we had we needed to get comp store growth. And so we started doing that in the fourth quarter of 2017, now five quarters in a row. Second thing was, how do you get market share growth? And so we had a four and a half point gap at the end of 2017. We narrowed that to two points to general market in 2018. We're not going to be satisfied until we're taking overall market share, and we're doing that business by business. Third point of growth is making sure that the franchise, the customer franchise is healthy, and we get new customers into the brand with the same the same you know speed that we've been taking care of the existing ones. And then the last stage of growth, which we need to show the street, is how we get profitability growth. Right. And so right now we're very focused on that. We've got our new CFO, Paula Price, and Hal Lawton focused on that. We call it funding the future. We've got all these efficiencies and productivity buckets that we're playing with because we're gonna keep growing the top line, but we're over time, 
we were going to show how we're going to be able to grow the bottom line as well. All right. So when I get out of college, what do I do? I get the Macy's credit cards. Yeah. The first one. Yes. It's a great, great assets that you have. But I knew to come to Macy's because it was exciting and new and different. And I finally had a couple bucks in my pocket so yes. I could come here. How do you get the next generation to come in? How do we get them to find about story? So this is you know, really our opportunity to be where the customer is fishing in terms of marketing. So where are we going to be in the social space? What are we going to be doing with all of our experiences? You know, the Thanksgiving Day Parade, all the special events that we do, products that we do, and then what do we do in the communities? So one of the things that I think is Macy's competitive mode as an omni-channel retailer, we stand for fashion, we stand for celebration, and we stand for community. So our opportunity with all of our great teams to be in the communities through our Partners in Time initiatives, what we do in terms of, of donations, customers do care about our brand a lot, and if we give them a reason to come into our store and create experiences like what you see around you, they're going to keep coming back. That's our mission. You used the word celebration. What happens if I'm here the moment the door opens? So what you have right now, what we're looking at right here is our beauty hall. Right. You are going to see fragrance testing. You're going to see special events in story up there. We just walked in right. and it's just like the store just opened. You saw crafts going on. You saw kids being engaged. They were on the light bright wall. You know, you see, you know, parents that basically were making pom-poms out of keychains. I mean, you go into the men's side of the floor, you're going to see the market at Macy's. You're going to see. So in a flagship, we've got that wired. In our magnet stores, which is about 350 stores, we're really working on that. In our neighborhood stores, which is the other part of our store segmentation, we're working on how we can be the most efficient experience for stores that customers still want to be in. Now, uh, can this scale? How many can you put story in? You've got a note. You've got the growth 50 going yeah. to 150. Yes. How do you get this across your whole panoply? Yeah. So. This was one where we opened this. We normally would have opened this and we would have done it in one store and we would have right. tested it. We brought Story about a year ago and we got this thing up and running and scaled in 36 stores in eight months. That's the speed That's that the we're now trying to work at in the company. And we've got new teams of people that are focused on multi-hats and how they're able to contribute to that. So this thing could scale to a lot more doors. And what am I doing in each of the doors is really where I'm focused. So I've got many new mechanisms by which I can bring experiences that involve all five senses into our building. Okay, I am enamored of the Blue Mercury, which is about a quarter mile from me. Yeah. And that's where we go. I know that we're supposed to go online, but we like to go because my wife likes to try things on. You've got fabulous growth with Blue Mercury. Where do you put the incremental dollar? Because backstage you got great growth. How do you decide, okay, that's the area I'm gonna fund? Yeah, so what we did in 2018 was we really focused on five initiatives and we have five initiatives that we're taking into 2019 three of those continue two are new our beauty destination which includes blue mercury right. is a we must win in beauty and so when it comes in different pieces and parts fragrances we're already the nation's headquarters skincare we figured and cracked the code in 2018 we're growing that Color cosmetics, we're really trying to figure that out. We're using Blue Mercury as a laboratory for that. We've got Blue Mercury now in Macy's. So Blue Mercury fits into okay. our overall opportunity to win in beauty. I'm hearing you the most enthused, which is right, we're also at home for you. So I have to believe that some of this is because the both high-end and low-end consumer are spending at your place. That's correct. And that's really why we wanted to go with Backstage. Because, you know, we're kind of in the middle land where you have in price points. And that can be a deadly land or it gives you the opportunity and flexibility to flex up or flex down depending on your consumer. So Backstage is going out the door at about a third of the retail as the balance of Macy's. Okay. We've now got that built into almost 200 of our brick-and-mortar stores and successfully. All right, let's talk about the competition. Yeah. I mean, Amazon is formable. Bezos just today 
he's obviously focused. We said he might not be focused. He's challenging rivals to match him on $15 minimum wage and benefits. What did you say to Jeff Bezos? What I'd say is that your culture is everything and how your team of colleagues feel about you as a brand and how you as a, as a trusted employer and how you take care of them is really important. So this is something we are hyper-focused on. But wage? wage? So wage, we look at it in every single community that we're in. What we decided to do with the tax savings in 2018, so we decided to put that back into the community of our colleagues. And so we, did, we created this thing called Path to Growth. So every single colleague, all 130,000, get a quarterly bonus as a result of the production of that store, that call center. So I was in uh, Cumberland, which is in our Atlanta store, okay. last week. I went onto the dock. Okay, so this is Doc. These are colleagues that you generally don't see. They, are, they receive goods. I went up to one of them and say, how do you think about Path to Growth? And this colleague said, you know what? If I get these goods off this conveyor belt and I get it onto the sales floor, I know that that's going to be a faster sell-through. The store will do better. And that's going to improve the overall production of this building. And I'm going to be able to get my, my incentive program. 96% of our colleagues in 2018, we paid an incentive to, and we just took our pulse survey. So this is where we measure how the colleagues feel about our organization. 70% of our 130,000 employees took it, and we were four points higher than we were. It was our all-time high in terms of how they're feeling about the brand, how they're being treated, our, our retention rates are up, our turnover rates are down. We're always looking at how we take care of our colleagues. I was going to ask about turnover because some of the great, we talk about the great retailers, the Jim Senegal, Frank Blake, we, they always teach us the same thing. If you stop turnover, then you have people who are know the, their customer, right. and you don't have to waste all that money and time training. So this is really great news. That's good news. Now, we still have our problems. We still have areas where our turnover is up. We have it in certain stores where you don't have the right leader. I mean, we're always working on it, and you're never done in our business. So what do you say about people who continue to say, brick and mortar in the mall is dead? Yeah. You know, I would tell you, Jim, that this was one of the big things for us in 2018. If I look at things that I'm most proud of, of what happened in the last year, was the change in our brick and mortar trend. You know, we figured out the right investment strategy to get a bank of our stores, you know, in good positive comps with good profitability. And this works when brick and mortar is working in addition to robust digital growth, in addition to a great mobile experience. That's our competitive mode. Healthy brick and mortar, strong digital, great you know mobile experience. So we've got to get brick and mortar healthier, and I think we have the formula for it. All right, now you are competitive, and I know you were not that happy with the last quarter. I wasn't. And how is it going to change from quarter to quarter? What did you do? Because I know that you're not complacent. Yeah. I know that you didn't just say, we're just going to keep doing the same thing, it'll get better. Right. That's yeah. not you. Yes. So that was, I think, mean, the, the point of 2018 for us. It was a good year. We were going into the fourth quarter with a great year. And we did stumble in the fourth quarter. We had our fifth quarter of positive comps, but it was not what we had planned for. So we have taken that apart. We've analyzed it every which way. There's some events that we don't expect to repeat. There was a fire that happened in one of our... Right. But at the did end of the see? day, you know, was our content what the customer wanted? Was our marketing as sticky as it needed to be? Did we need to have new public customers coming into our brand? We were highly self-critical about that. We have the game plan. We're not going to repeat that. I expect that the investors need to see that we can win in holiday of 2019. That we're a show me with respect to that. Well, and we're very committed to doing that. All right. I'm leaving it right there because I like what you just said. That's Jeff Gennady's chairman and CEO of Macy's. Jeff, thank you so much. Thank you, Jeff. Great to see you. Hey, you know us. We're always on the lookout for new trends 
and for some of the coolest things I've ever heard of, like Stock X, which is a kind of stock market for things, namely limited edition sneakers, watches, handbags, and streetwear. Stock X got its start as a centralized marketplace for sneakerheads to buy and sell very expensive shoes. And it's been such a hit that it keeps expanding in new categories. You know what? This is a game changer. I keep thinking of when was when, when eBay started, you said, wow, hold it, this is like unbelievable. And then it becomes a billion dollar guy. This is what's going to happen to these guys. That's why I want Josh Luber. He's the co-founder and CEO of StockX to, to find out more about this amazing company. Mr. Luber, welcome to Mad Money. Good to see you. Good to be here. Thank Thanks you. Thank me. you, Josh. I mean, I got to tell you, I'm a little more excited than usual because I, I, I was having dinner with Mark Benioff. And I, his, his nephew starts, he's doing, he's trading, he's trading. I'm, I'm having dinner today. I, I said, well, stocks? It's 11, it was after work. Then he said, no, sneakers. I, I, I said, but that's the silliest thing I ever heard. And he yeah. said, why don't you do some homework? Why don't you look at StockX? You know, what's funny was I happened to be sitting next to Mark at NBA Finals game. And I sat down with him. And at the first TV timeout, his wife leans over to me. And she goes, looks at her phone. She goes, are you the StockX guy? <laughs> And right, and, and it was and it was his nephew that had reached out to him. Well, so then yeah, you know that he's yeah. okay. Right. Well, by the way, the, and the flip side, and you know, I, I got text from like, you're sitting next to Mark Benioff, and then she got text sitting next for for 15 year old kids or however old his nephew is. Yes. I mean, this That's is it. this is life. And so that was me when through. I was 15 years walk old. Walk us through because yeah. I think that this is the most amazing thing. And my first reaction was, I, why didn't I do it? And second is, darn it all because of the show. I would like to be you and Dan Gilbert's partner. That's how cool I think this is. Yeah, and the thing is, like, sneakers are massive, and we can talk about, like, the shoes that we have here and, and why this is such a big business. But it is about the model. It is about, we've basically, we've created a stock market for consumer yes. goods, right? So we've basically taken how eBay used to work and said, listen, this is how marketplaces used to function. Well, why doesn't it function like stock markets? And we say that, and people immediately think about investments. And it's not about investments per se, although it, it can, can be. be. It's about the method of connecting buyers and sellers, right? If you think about how a stock market connects buyers and sellers yes. with bids and asks right. you know, around a single asset, that's been the most efficient form of, of price discovery forever, right. right? And so all we're doing is taking it that, pointing it from stocks and bonds and oil and gas to new commodities, right. to sneakers and streetwear and watches and handbags. But what, what defines value? I mean, I have sneakers. They don't, they're worth what I paid for them. What's <laughs> or, worth or, more than or, what I paid for? Or maybe less if you've been wearing them, right? <laughs> right. This is just supply and demand. This is Econ 101. So like, if Nike puts out a limited edition yeah. of 200, 200 pairs of sneakers, the limited edition because Jordan, okay? Yeah. If I go buy 10 of those and I wait six months, am I going to make money? Maybe, right? Maybe. maybe. Well, you got to ask the demand side of the equation, right? right. So what's, what's phenomenal about this, even maybe more so than the actual market in terms of supply and demand, in the actual market, ultimately, the company's performance has a, has a direct impact, right, right on right. The, this is just supply and demand, right? right. And so, like, the, I chose these it's shoes pure. for a reason. It is it is. The purest part, right? Right. Right. This shoe right here, this was Kanye's first shoe with Adidas. This is, it's called the, the um, Adidas Yeezy it's 350. It's like, like the move where I can't yeah, touch yeah, it. Yeah, no, like, like, take a is, hammer to it like Michelangelo or something. This was the first shoe that they released with, with Adidas. This is Kanye's first shoe. It's called the Yeezy 350 Turtle Dove, right? We don't know supply. The brands don't tell us supply. Right. But we know it was limited. And because of Kanye, this demand is, was through the roof. All right, so, all right, am I holding, like, a $200 pair of sneakers? At retail. And now what, what are they trading on StockX? About 1200 This. So yes. this is worth 600 No, no, no. Well, 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 you know what I mean. It's a buy-by-two situation. Uh, we don't do a lot of selling gotcha. individual shoes. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And by the way, this is the least expensive of all the shoes we have oh, up here. On. But this is a $1,200 <laughs> pair, right? 
But right? maybe these are tulips. They, they're not tulips. All right, tell me why they're not tulips. Transparency. Tulips, baseball cards, Beanie Babies, right? Baseball cards. Everybody thought they were the only one that had 1289 Upper Deck Ken Griffey Juniors. But we all had 1289 Upper Decks. I know, they printed right? too many of them. They printed too many. And there was no transparency to know what was out there, right? And first of all, that was before the internet, right? This is, when you have transparency into a market, then you could have true supply and demand and not worry about a, a bubble and, and burst but and tulips and baseball cards. But Nike floods the zone and don't, don't that's tell fair. you. That's fair. So that, that's how... You could crash the market, Nike or Adidas could crash the market, if they made every shoe available in infinite supply. But they would <laughs> but have Josh, all sorts they, of other they issues. they know all about you, and they won't do that. Of course this they won't. This is key for them, of, isn't it? This Mark is marketing. Mark knows where things are trading. He's CEO. A thousand percent. A thousand percent. It, this is marketing for them. This is great, right? This shoe in the end, this is a shoe. This is a collaboration. This is an Air Jordan 1, but it's a collaboration with Virgil Abloh, who's done a bunch of collaborations, who's a designer from Off-White, and now also designs for Louis Vuitton. And so this shoe, which retailed for about $200, now resells for about $1,500. I'm afraid to even touch him. I mean, like, what, if I, what if I scuff him? We're going to work our way up in value, right? But, uh, you know, I'm being told, you know, I have yeah. to tell you something about TV. There's my friend Kareem, and he's waving me and telling me that this interview is over, and, I, and I'm not ending it. I'm not ending it because I'm having too good a time. We've we got a Just lot more shoes to get how you got the mm-hmm. idea, all right, and where you see this thing going, and then yeah. Kareem, yeah, it's okay. Cause this yeah. is too much fun. I get two more minutes. I just got two more minutes. Value, right? This whole thing is about price discovery, about true market value. Okay. Before this, I had a price guide for sneakers. We were scraping eBay to create the Kelly Blue Book for sneakers. Cool. That's the start of all of this, is what is a, a sneaker actually worth? If you understand the value of one pair of sneakers, you could create sneaker portfolios. You could look at your whole sneaker collection like a stock portfolio. And then it's just one step to say an actual stock market for sneakers. Right. That's but, how this thing okay, started. Okay, but how about the greatest of all time? How about your opponent, Goat, just got $100 million from Foot Locker? Mm-hmm. Powerful. Yeah, but you know what? What that shows is that the retail sector and the resale sector are converging. It's going to be one market. Who are the people? Yeah. Is they young? Are they old? I mean, I turned out everybody. that my, half my staff is doing this thing. Yeah, yeah. When I thought they were working with me. It, right? I thought, it, they, I thought they were doing this show, but they were trading sneakers. Yeah, it's, a, it's about access. Maybe you don't want to pay $1,500, but maybe you just want a pair of shoes different than what's at Foot Locker today. There's 300 pairs of shoes on the wall at Foot Locker. There's 35,000 on StockX. I wish that I could do a special just on this. This is brilliant. That's Josh Luber, CEO of StockX. I have tremendous, tremendous respect for what this man has done. That money's back at you. It is time! It's time for the Lightroom Club members. I'm Brett for Gold Runner. Stay tuned. Bye bye. Bye bye. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski dang. Time for the lightning round. It's over. It's Jerry in Illinois. Jerry! Hi, Jim. First of all, thank you for helping me send four grandchildren through college. Ah, you're a good man. Thank you. So the question is about Fox. I've been in it since almost the beginning. It's a terrific company, but lately, I don't know. It's flat as a pancake. What's going on? I totally agree with you. I just feel like that they're in the penalty box. I would not own the stock here. They are slowing. You need you know, look. Some companies like Okta are accelerating. Companies like Box are slowing. They better do something that accelerates the growth rate, or it's not going to go anywhere. Tom in Florida. Tom. Hey, I love your show, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. Oh, what do yeah. you got there, Tom? SNH. Huh? Senior S- House. N-H. Oh, no, no. They, this is one. This is a bad business. 
This is a, a this yield I do not think can be maintained. And how the senior citizen housing is not a good business right now. Let's go to Melissa in Pennsylvania. Melissa. Hi, Jim. How are you doing? I am good. How about you? Good. I'm an Action Works Club member, and I just yes. want to thank you for everything you do for us. Thank you. I'll hear you on the call tomorrow at 1130, I hope. Absolutely. Thank you. My question is, I have a position in Four Scout Technologies, mm-hmm. and I'm looking to add to it. And I was wondering if you would recommend buying more before they report their earnings. Well, you know that my favorite in that space is Palo Alto. I don't think you need to buy any more Four Scout. You know, these stocks right now, this one's come in with high expectations. Let's be careful. It is up 60%. Thank you for being a member of the club. Let's go to uh, Palo in Florida. Palo, I hope. Yes, sir. Hello, Mr. Kramer. Thank How are you for you? taking my call today. I'm doing excellent, sir. How are you? Oh, I'm good. Thank you. So my question today is about Plug Power, P-L-U-G. They design and manufacture zero-emission uh, hydrogen and fuel cell systems for right. uh, material handle equipment like forklifts. Uh, they also do stationary uh, power packs such as batteries. Mm-hmm. Last quarter, they were up 75%. Today, there was an announcement that they agreed with Lapari Foods yes. to get together with them. And they support, uh, Lapari Foods supports like uh, companies like Walmart and Amazon. And no, Walmart. no, it's a good, it's a good partner. Look, here's the way I've been saying it. I know it's been asked many times on Twitter. It's a speculative stock. Does it have the momentum? Yes. Have I seen it fl- uh, flame out a couple times? Yes. Speculators only, but I bless it for speculation because they are doing some in- interesting things. How about Sunil in Minnesota? Sunil. Booyah, Jim. Thank Booyah. you for everything you do for us oh, on Gamers. Thank you, Thank you. I have, a question. I have a question for you. Spotify, your take on Spotify. You know what? Look. I know that I am, maybe people think I'm too bullish on it. I use it, we use it everywhere. I think we do the subscription. We know that a lot of people are migrating from free to subscription. I think it's a matter of time. I don't mind the podcast. People hated that podcast acquisition. I think that's bad that they don't, they hate it. I think it's a good acquisition. And I think that Spotify is a good stock to buy. All right, let's go to Leon in New York. Leon. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. Go ahead. Hello. Yeah. Yes. I would like to um, to hear your opinion about Sun Run. Uh. Okay. I have to do a deep dive on all the solar stocks because they keep changing the darn state laws. So let me come back on Sun Run, and we're going to throw in first solar too. And that, ladies and gentlemen, of the lightning round. The lightning round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. I'm a big believer in lifelong education, but when you get to be my age, it's awfully hard to find new teachers. That's why Jeff Bezos' annual letter to Amazon shareholders was such a revelation. I learned more about about business from this one document than from almost anything else I've seen since my earliest days at Goldman Sachs 37 years ago. Forget the crazy stories about his personal life. Who cares? Bezos has some serious sage wisdom, and just believe me, he's as focused as ever. First, some of Amazon's best businesses are businesses that... Nobody asked for, like Amazon Web Services, the gigantic cloud infrastructure platform with a 47% growth rate. Bezos writes that, and I quote, no one asked for AWS, no one, end quote. He continues, quote, turns out the world was in fact ready and hungry for an offering like AWS, but didn't know it. So why did Amazon even get into the web services space? They had a hunch, he says. Follow your hunches, he tells you. Go the curious road. Take the financial risks and then iterate 
until you get it right. Bezos talks a lot about, and I quote, the power of wandering. Amazon encourages people who like to explore and invent. He calls it a culture of builders. None of this is random. When you know where you're going, Bezos says, you can be efficient. But when you're not sure of your destination, he explains that wandering is an essential counterbalance to efficiency. You need to employ both. The outsized discoveries, the nonlinear ones, are highly likely to require wandering. Now, I've got to tell you something. In all my years in business, all my years of working, I have never been urged to wander. And I got to tell you something. I sure wish I had. Could have done a lot more with my life. Next, Bezos says you must fail. That's right. Not you should. You must fail. Not maybe. You must. Not only that, you need to fail to scale. Meaning your businesses get bigger, your failures should get bigger too. Why? He says if the size of your failures isn't growing, you're not going to be inventing at a size that can actually move the needle. Plus. Failure can create some incredible ideas. Amazon started developing the Fire Phone and the Echo, their smart home system, at the same time. Well, we know what happened to Fire Phone. He says he says to you, failure. But they took what they learned and applied it to the Echo and to Alexa. Of course, some of this stuff sounds a little out there. And if you didn't know any better, you might think Bezos has lost his mind. But you know what? There's a thin line between madness and genius. Listen to this. No customer was asking for Echo, he writes. This was definitely wandering. Market research doesn't help. If you had gone to a customer in 2013 and said, would you like a black always-on cylinder in your kitchen about the size of a Pringles can that you can talk to and ask questions that also turns on your lights and plays music, I guarantee you they'd have looked at you strangely and said, no, thank you. Yet since its launch, Amazon has sold 100 million, 100 million, Alexa-powered devices. What else? Bezos notes that Amazon raised its minimum wage to $15 an hour, along with all sorts of benefits, because in addition to being the right thing to do, it's good business to ensure that your workers are happy. In fact, he's super competitive about paying his people more than the other guy. Put it all together, and you can understand why Amazon remains such a fantastic story, and its stock remains viable even at these exalted levels. Stick with Kramer. Oh, boy, there's a lot of stuff coming out about Disney tonight. It's going to be major, major moves when we finally find out what 2019 and 2020 earnings are going to be, which is why I can't wait to talk to David Faber tomorrow morning. Like I said, there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise you I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. I want people to feel like they just learned something. We have journalists in the far corners of the universe. I can't wait to get all of those resources under one hour-long newscast where we can deliver the facts of the day clearly and concisely in context and with perspective and tell people what's happening, what it all means. Get the truth, not the spin. The News with Shepard Smith. Subscribe to the podcast today.